What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you our first December edition of the podcast in 2020. It's the end of the year, Dave, and let me tell you, we're bringing you all the heat in the next coming weeks. Today, we have quite a few movies, quite a few albums, a TV show. Next couple weeks, we have lots of movies, TV, end of year. Hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube uh, and hit that subscribe button for my co-host, Dave. Dave, how you doing? How, how's your year in review, your wrapped year going? <laughs> Spotify rap season is here. Apple Music users are shook right now like they always are. Uh, it's going well. I, I, I enjoy Spotify rap. I enjoy seeing everyone share it. Are, are, do, do you know anyone who like is like, nobody cares about your Spotify rap. Don't post it. Like, there, do you know anyone like that? There's always someone who like tweets about it, um, but I, I love to see them. I think it's very interesting. Um, the only thing every year is I'm always uh, frustrated with Spotify. Obviously, a, a wonderful application, music streaming service, and uh, they somehow can't figure out how to like weed out algorithms of songs that are just totally binged to fuck up your play you're you're wrapped every year like right uh you know you go on one binge and that song is now just your your favorite artist your favorite album it's everything so they got to figure that out yeah i've been reluctant to revisit some early eminem because i'm like i can't run through (laughs) three eminem albums because then he's gonna be my number five artist and i can't have that you know (laughs) (laughs) and i also feel like they should allow you to customize it a little bit like Give me the raw data, but I mean, like, if I went on a binge of Eminem, let me take him out. I don't, I don't need to show people that. Let me show what yeah. I want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me uh, in this case, it was Heady One. I did a lot of catch up on him, and he came out at number four. And listened to a lot of Heady One in general this year, but I don't know if he really would have been in my top five. But alas, that's what happens. Uh, I also. So, so Spotify gives you options on like what your subscription is. And we went with the, or at least I think I went with the Hulu and Spotify yeah. subscription, which you, you did as well. Which is no longer uh, available, by the way. We still got that free Hulu. Very nice. Yeah. I, I know. I'm, I'm keeping that forever. As lo- or as long I'm as waiting for Disney to be like, this is dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it will happen someday. But um, I've been reluctant to switch up and give, uh, you know, fiance of of this podcast or her own account julianne tui because um man i don't want to pay for uh to you know second account it's a little bit more i don't want to lose hulu but because of that taylor swift was my number one uh artist this year i was a top five percent taylor swift listener on spotify uh i do love taylor swift i think she's a wonderful artist but um she's not my my number one artist of the year folks i'll tell you that much so that's the burden you bear sir yeah, that, that that's my cross, and I hope you all can recognize what I, I do for you. So uh, subscribe. And Dave, as we're thinking about end of the year and heading into 2021, how are you feeling about Warner Brothers deciding that all their big screen releases will be released simultaneously on HBO Max in 2021? A lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts. Where to begin? I- yeah, really. I think it really because there's so many angles to this, right? And there's so many justifications and or gripes depending on how you're approaching this. I think just from the average movie fan, watcher of movies, podcaster about movies, it is nice that I know I'll be able to access all 17 films that Warner Brothers is planning to release in 2021. 
Although it does kind of suck that I have to watch Wonder Woman on my screen this Christmas, and it's going to go from there. Godzilla versus Kong, definitely more theater aligned. Dune, hopefully I can go to the theater and actually go see Dune in October, but if not, that that would kind of be disappointing to me. But that's not the average person. So, I mean, that that is nice. And for me, my negativity around this is more about the the big picture uh, post-2021 decision-making. Because, like, financially, it seems like a great idea for Warner Brothers to really flood the zone on HBO Max and make, make people figure out what HBO Max is, subscribe if they don't, and make the millions of HBO proper subscribers actually activate HBO Max, because that's the case. Like There are tens of millions of people that pay for HBO and have access to HBO Max at no extra charge, but either don't know or don't care to get into the Max ecosystem. And as we've said before, HBO Max, a very great streaming service with a lot of content and I think this this level of new content throughout the year is, I think, pretty appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, it's a interesting and felt inevitable in some ways that one of these uh, media companies was going to team up with a streaming service to do this. I am surprised that it, it kind of just dropped out of the clouds the other day, honestly, and really shook things up. However, um, I feel like this is something people have been talking about forever. I mean, even since we started the podcast, what was it? The, uh, the screen room, the screening room. Yeah. Was, Sean Barker. Yeah. was one of our first episodes. We were talking about the possibility of this. And I, I feel like even before people were talking about how they're going to have to invest in larger televisions and less better invest in better sound systems, really get that movie theater experience when people don't go to the movies anymore. And here we are. It's kind of, wild to be approaching this this real possibility and the thing is though i think we're actually quite removed from the street the screening room because as you said even if box office numbers stay high like in terms of like volume quantity of tickets sold is down it's been down for a while um inflation is really just keeping that you know uh in in tow you know with rising ticket prices but the screening room was going to cost like 50 bucks HBO Max is 15 bucks a month. Like you do the math on this, it's pretty stark. Like if a family of four goes to the movies twice in one year, that makes a studio more money than 12 months of HBO Max. And that's with a theater split of 50 to 50%. It's pretty obvious that big movies are not profitable on streaming and they cannot cost what they cost if they're going to be released on streaming. Now, like in case of like a Netflix, they don't really make a lot, so they can like really drop the bag on stuff like The Irishman and make do. But like Warner Brothers, Disney, uh, Universal, it, it does not make sense, and that's where my fear is. Because in 2022, once audiences perhaps are more accustomed to seeing everything on their TV on day one. Are they just going to make less expensive movies because they actually can't afford to really make as many as they used to? That's my fear that this is just going to change movies because it's going to shift audience behavior. But I mean, in the in the short term, it's a great value. You can't you can't deny that amazing value. And they have said that this is supposedly just a one year thing, a response to the pandemic, and you know the uncertainty around when places like L.A. and and New York City will be 
be able to have people back in theaters safely again. Um, but it, I don't get the sense that this is a one-year thing. I mean, this how is how do you put the genie shift. back in the bottle like this? Right. It's uh, it feels inevitable that this is here to stay, and and you know, similar to the streaming wars, I think uh, something that we're gonna be talking about and keeping our eye on is how these streaming companies are vying to get pieces of these these filmmakers you know and, and these film companies i mean we already have these creators being uh getting these huge contracts from netflix and, Am- and amazon and hbo but now even now more like these uh film production companies are going to be teaming up and it's just going to be these studios are going to be driving up the prices there but how do, how do you make that money back if you're not, you know, you're going to drive up subscription prices in the long run. That's the thing. Well, and I, I think that is the hope. That's the whole play. That's with any streaming service is that do in Netflix is you just don't make money for forever, basically. But then you become too big to fail because too many people are invested in your ecosystem. That's what everyone else wants to do, right? But like we're we're seeing we're seeing lots of like traditional convention chains. I mean, I guess the the seeds of this were planted early in the pandemic when Universal like cut down on their theatrical uh, windowing and put uh, uh, Trolls World Tour on like PVOD, like much sooner than previously agreed to stuff like that. Right. So, you know, I mean, now we'll see, like, I I don't know about Disney, like Mulan, we had the experiment with that when you paid $30 to access it. This is quite different than that because like Mulan's making a lot more money even with people splitting that $30 price on top of a Disney plus subscription. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know they've put soul on Disney plus and no extra charge coming out on Christmas. But I mean, are we going to see black widow debut on Disney plus? I'm very skeptical of that because Disney's doing really well with Disney plus. They, they are making money, even if they're not making money from all their, you know, sectors like cruises and parks. So, and a movie like that, that you know is, is a guarantee to make money worldwide, not just in the yep. U.S. I don't know, but Warner Brothers, you know, to, to announce their whole 2021 slate, it, it, it's a focus on HBO Max first and foremost. That's mm-hmm. what they care about. That's why they're doing this. So uh, I just hope that people still want to go to the movies a year from now when they're actually able to again. You know, uh, I'm sure we will, but. Um... Will others? That's the real question. Dave, will this finally get you to watch The Wire, though? That's my real question. <laughs> I don't Probably it. not. You know, <laughs> uh, you, you, one would have thought, with all this free time during the COVID-19 pandemic, I would have had more time to catch up on things on the backlog. Did I catch up on literally anything in 2020? Absolutely nope. not. I thought I'd find some music I wanted to. That's about it. Uh, yeah. It's hard out here. <laughs> Dave, don't, it's the pandemic. Don't be too hard on yourself. We're all just getting by, man. And uh, we'll be talking more and more about this as, uh, as things come out. But why don't we jump into some music? We're going to start with an album that had a deluxe drop, but dropped a, a little while back. The Rina Sawayama uh, debut album, Sawayama, um, all capitals. But man, uh this this album is a real surprising delight in so many ways you know it's it's funny because if you listen to just the first like four tracks of this album you're just like 
how do I put a finger on what this is? You know, it feels like uh, at, at one moment, Avenged Sevenfold-esque, and then at the next moment, like, we're listening to Justin Timber Timberlake Senorita, and then we're jumping around to, like, uh, you know, Christina Aguilera circa early you know, 2000s. It's, it's a bit all over the place, but in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this album came out in April. I remember seeing all that hype. And I finally got around to it like a few weeks ago. And then I saw that there was a, this deluxe was coming out, which which is quite unusual to get a deluxe what, eight months after the fact. I mean, nowadays we're getting a deluxe a week or two later, which is all the bonus songs that usually suck just to game streams. But didn't seem that didn't seem to be the case for this uh, Rena debut album. And I went into that album after listening to her debut EP Rena from 2017. And that was where like, you know, I had that revelatory moment where I think a lot of people do when they listen to her, we're like, wow, wait a minute. This is like multi-genre, super 2000s, and it's just it's just awesome. Like, I think uh, Take Me As I Am off that Arena EP, I, I immediately, you immediately hear Britney Spears, you know, and then on Afterlife, it's like dance pop with these like sick guitar riffs. It, 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 it was really great i've been really digging that ep in particular and then you know you listen to the debut album on top of that and you can tell that i uh, it's something that it seems to be able to jump around but it feels like super genuine to me and it doesn't seem messy it doesn't sound messy it just seems like it's it's really multi-layered project you know and i, I think the band i've seen thrown out a lot as compares the point is corn actually funny enough and like new metal in particular seems to be a uh, a touchstone for comparing the the rock side of her sound, but to 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 have bring new metal back in a non ironic way, <laughs> and combine that with like dance pop and two thousands like throwback pop sounds, I I think it, it rules. To be honest, yeah, it's it's a very uh, captivating album pretty much from start to finish, and you never really know what's going to come next on the tracks, which I think plays a part in in the allure of the first listen through but then you start to really like dig into it and you know a song like uh uh come de garçons is yeah. uh, i mean i'm pretty sure that that flips the beat from mr fingers mystery of love which was used as a sample on fade by kanye west um so it has this sure. like thumping uh bass to it or at least it sounds just like that song um but it's such a dancey song you're just like moving to it and then the next song you could be you know thrashing your head to um you, you have like a glitter rock song um from like the 80s in paradise and you jump to uh, a like pared down uh sad pop song like bad friend which is getting a lot of love on end of year lists right now and you, you kind of see that she's got the range and uh just a very interesting artist with a very interesting style. Um, it, it's really impressive to see this from someone so young. And uh, I, I, the, I don't feel like the deluxe added much to it, but it was just nice to hear, try a couple of things, especially taking on one of your favorite songs. Uh, Love it. If we made it, how did you feel about that? Yeah. I, I, I think it's a fine cover. It, it, it doesn't reach like Miley Cyrus level, like rock covers. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about last week, but um, there, there was, I think, just three like original tracks 
dollar bonuses and everything else is like an acoustic version or a cover or something. But uh, yeah, we out here in bees and honey. Rena had said that they would have made the original album in April if not for other things getting put in. So truly feel like you know bonus tracks in that regard. But also Lucid, which seems to have been finished uh, more recently, produced by Blood Pop. And I think Rena said she had been working on this with Blood Pop uh, for you know last year. Then Blood Pop got distracted when he was brought in in a big way on Chromatica, of course. Mm. But that's a song you listen to. Like, wow, wait, is this is like that was kind of throwing me back to like kaigo songs at his best i was like wow and like there's nothing like that like super electronic on yeah the the rest of the album you know um i mean for me i really like uh excess which has a music video you know i think lyrically it's pretty Mm -hmm. easy measures the grasp so is a stfu which i which i really love because that has those like hard guitar riffs and then like the britney spears like (laughs) like vocal line yeah (laughs) And, and lyrically, of course, it's kind of, it's kind of about people like uh, like stereotyping her and stuff. Um, I think I think that one's, that one's really special. Yeah, no, there's a lot of I I think songs that stand out in different ways. I agree. Um, both Dynasty and STFU have that like corn sound, like you mentioned, that bench sevenfold uh, callback I had. Um, I really think the first like four tracks just really pop out at you. Mm-hmm. Um, Paradise, then I thought it was great, but bad friend. Um, I guess if anything, it, it kind of tapers out near the back half of the album. You know, I kind of like Tokyo Love Hotel too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And uh, it was funny when we were doing our Grammys, uh, you know, picks, and I, I saw her name come up on Best New Artist. I made a note to like check in with her because I remember also seeing the album get some good reviews back in uh, earlier in the year. And, the fact that she dropped this deluxe right when she did fruitful for us yeah she's very much in the same vein as carly ray jepson from a career standpoint very popular has a very dedicated fan base but doesn't really have like a certain discernible like hit song at least not yet um but yeah there was there was a lot of backlash to her not being selected for best new artist and you would think that that's actually a great selection because she's actually still not quite that famous, you know, mm-hmm. but alas, there's a lot of complaints about the Grammys uh, and no. we'll get to those in time. You know, I think <laughs> one, one notable conversation that arose from this breakout from Rena as well is that she was not eligible for the Brit Awards or the Mercury Prize because despite living in England for 25 years of her life, she was born in Japan mm-hmm. and still holds a Japanese passport because you cannot be a dual citizen if you're from Japan and she has like family back there and stuff. And even though she had like, there's this like status you can have in England where you're allowed to like stay there permanently, like, and not have to go back. Like your visa, nothing nothing expires. Like you're basically a permanent residence. You're just not a citizen. She has that status, but she's still not eligible for all these British specific awards and prizes and I think that started a conversation about uh, defining Britishness, which has been very much a unfortunate topic in the past few years. So I think I think we'll, we'll probably hear more about that in time. But either way, uh, I think Rena certainly is not going away. The, the, quite quite the stretch of accolades in 2020. Apparently, Ellen John's a big fan of hers and calls her up from time to time just to say that he's looking out and is a fan. Elton John becoming just everybody's like, I don't know, our, uh, cool uncle just like <laughs> popping into things, you know, especially if you listen to the uh, yeah. Ringer music show, the 
him dropping by for my beautiful dark twisted fantasy just sounds like such an awesome moment um anyways uh rena sawayama check out the new album while we move on to the saviors of rock and roll dave these are the ones who are going to save us young blood young blood uh weird their most recent album uh i guess you can count this as their third i don't think the 13 reasons why album really counts for them um so yeah and i guess the other one's a live album so this is their second studio album and um i gotta say i have not listened to music like this that's new in a very long time i go back to taking back sunday fallout boy that early like 2000s emo rock sound you know that really infused a lot of like pop and other sorts of like fun genres at that time but i really was getting nostalgic listening to them and uh very hit or miss album for me uh young say that again uh i'm wondering yeah it seems like you you were on the same boat what did you find hit and what did you found missed about them yeah well i just kind of been interested in his career because it seemed to have come up out of nowhere he very much gets industry plant charges because he just debuted a few years back already signed to an imprint of universal music group and everyone's like huh that's weird but and it's been quite meteoric since then making hit songs with halsey and machine gun kelly and the like but yeah it's funny to see I, I guess this is like the Gen Z rock that's at its most popular, right? Like a Gen Z person making music that's lyrically in that sentiment. But it's funny to me, if you listen to Weird, because it jumps around a lot, I don't really know if Youngblood has much of an identity. I've kind of been honing that thought for a while because the my favorite song that he's made came out just last year. It's called Parents. It has a music video that has almost like a hip hop cadence to it. Very easy message to understand about you, your, uh, your parents don't know shit about what you're going through. Don't listen to them, but you know, nothing, nothing new ground there, but for some reason, I really like that groove. And then on this, it's like, wow, he's jumping around so much, but I don't, I, I just don't feel like he's convincing anyone of like who his music, like what his music is. Cause like, sometimes I'm like, Oh, this is like Maddie Healy karaoke. And Matty Healy is already someone who's like barely a rock star in the traditional sense, right? He basically makes pop music. And then Young Blood just kind of copy a Matty Healy thing on the cotton candy in particular, that uh, that hook, the you, you, you. It's like that that's fucking 1975 shit right there. Like Yeah. And like, and even Go ahead. He just feels like he like sometimes presents as having an edge to his music and sometimes pulls that way back, you know? And like for 1975, I think are quite genuine in how they jump around. It makes sense to me, at least. Young Blood, I, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it's quite scattershot. Yeah, and you, I think the 1975 wannabe comparison is is right in line with kind of where I was at. Um, God save me, but don't drown me out. Has this like interesting guitar or uh, sorry drum beat that just is like a little stilted and like stuttered. And um, then the way he sings over it kind of in this, like on a talky type voice, it really reminded me of like, love it if we made it in some ways. And I was just kind of getting very strong 1975 vibes from that song as well. And then I'm looking through my notes and it's funny. Everything was me. 
comparing him to another artist i was like oh this sounds very reliant k or the fray on um teresa which is this like love song that he tried to write i i put down um this reminds me of a beastie boys attempt on super dead friends i mean it's just feels like he's he's reaching for this like pop punk space but not really defining himself within it but kind of doing a lot of things okay i do think there's one song though that's an absolute pop on this which is charity the chorus and hook on that song just uh i thought that was really really catchy uh good tune definitely was was vibing with that but outside of that i really found a lot of this to be good but pretty unmemorable and and in line with just or just trying to do things other people have already done better yeah yeah i think a big part of that is he's lyrically not that impressive it's pretty simple usually i think the best he gets with that is probably mars which does seem to have a, a, a nice message and for what i understand his uh, tours and, and, and shows when they when they could happen he tried to quite the motley crew he seems to uh definitely appeal to people that feel you know like outsiders and stuff and that's cool and all but i i still think the the music could take a step up a little bit honestly and like you have this song you have an mgk song on here one of your could, rap could, artists i couldn't quite place the melody that kelly in particular was doing on this but if Sounded really familiar. I want to figure that out still. But I actually think they made a better song last year on Machine Gun Kelly's album. I think I'm okay. I think it goes a little harder than this. But yeah, yeah, he, he's a weird one, man. Hence the album <laughs> title. Uh, weird is good, but uh, be more yourself and weird. Maybe less other people and weird. But eh, it is what it is. And we're going to move on to someone else that's weird in probably the best way. That's Rico Nasty dropping her new album, Nightmare Vacation. Uh, Dave, Rico Nasty, what, where is she, where, where are you at with, with her? Where is she on your like rapper, I don't know, rankings or wherever you tears, I guess. Oh, I haven't thought about her in a tear sense, to be honest, just because, you know, hit, hit making wise, she's still, uh, on her way up with that, but, uh, very high, I, mean, I hold her in very high esteem. I have for two years at this point, I think she's really cool because she's someone that actually and genuinely can switch up her sound and her delivery and her vocal lines and her energy from song to song and have it make sense because she actually just makes a lot of different music at this point and that's very exciting in hip-hop you know um you think back to the xxl cover last year it was the three women on there were her tiara whack and megan the stallion three very distinct individuals and that's probably the best best thing about Rico on its face is that she is very unique. And I think Nightmare Vacation, which is funny, fun, funny enough being billed as her debut album, even though I feel like that nasty mixtape from 2018 was really her debut. It was her Atlantic debut anyway. Uh, I don't know if this reinvents like our expectations for Rico being different and, and, and impressive and unique, but it does a lot of that really good stuff that we've come to associate with Rico Nasty. And I like it quite a bit. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to talk about getting weird, um, just bring in 100 Gex, right? And have them <laughs> produce a couple of the songs and they'll pop off. I mean, the song most people know off this is Smack a Bitch, which that song is on our Spotify uh, playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2020. So follow that. Nearly three um, years old. 
<laughs> but um, just a, a total tune. But I, yeah, I think the the songs with Gex, I mean, we're we're also highly attuned to them after covering a couple of their their albums. Um, really stood out to me. What about for you? Well, yeah, I think iPhone, which came out several months ago at this point, I think that's in the running for the best song Rico's ever made, to be honest, because I mean, that she has like three different vocal pitches on that. On, on, on verse two, she's straight up singing. And in the, in the meantime, it's a Dylan Brady beat. So you, you know what that sounds like at this point, that hyper pop, you know, it's mm-hmm. a very in vogue uh, word to use to describe that kind of music. But that really is what it is. You also have a great quotable on that smoking too much gas. I forgot to put my mask on. Like nothing is more 2020. Uh, yeah, I think I think iPhone is a total smash and lends itself to, I think, those like more pop sensibilities that Rico has. And by, you know, again, like that's the Charlie XCX 100 Gex angle to pop. And she was on the Gex remix album. Uh, Elsewhere, you have also funny enough produced by Brady. Doesn't sound like it's a Gex song though, and that'd be Oh for Real, which that's just straight straight bars. At the end of the day, Rico can get really in your face with her rapping. The flows are really fast. The uh, aggression comes across. That's not new for her for the past few years, but when it hits, it really hits. I think there's some moments on this album where it might just kind of feel samey because the song isn't actually that special. But like when it hits on a song, oh for real, like I, I don't know if there's that many rappers that can really like kind of match that aggression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's a good pairing of the of Gex and Rico because while Rico can bring, like you said, that aggression, that fire, that spiciness, I feel like Dylan Brady can just bring the the weirdness and that like intense uh i don't know mechanical electronic sound that's so distinct and yeah those paired together i never would have thought of it but what an awesome pairing um any other highlights for you on, on this album anything else that stood out yeah i think it actually the album starts off pretty well uh candy i really like that chorus from rico it's really bouncy and then back and forth with amine another one where like the Trading of flows between Rico and Amina is really cool. And another thing, because it's it's in between. It's not straight up singing like parts of iPhone. It's not the hyper aggressive style of Oh For Real. It's somewhere in the middle. You get more of that again on one of the other singles, Own It, where it's Mm -hmm. like, that's actually Rico just straight up like flowing on the song. And it sounds good. And she's just really talented, man. Like, I think one of the most disappointing parts to me, honestly, was the Smack a Bitch remix which, I mean, smack a bitch again, almost three years old, but that was the song that kind of put her on the map when she brought in Kenny Beats and got more aggressive. But the remix featuring Ruby Rose, Suki Hana, and Pinky Cocaine, um, I didn't love those features on that. I, I mean, like, lyrically-wise, I, I get what they were going for, but I still don't know if Ruby Rose is much of a rapper. She's more famous for social media still. And Pinky Cocaine's basically like TikTok Takashi, so I'm okay with that, but... Overall, I mean, Rico Nasty, man. If you're not on board, you're just missing out because no one else is really trying to do anything like this. Yeah, she's she's special, uh, I feel like. And, you know, um, it's funny, going through a lot of the end-of-year lists that are coming out now for songs, um, you know, you see Megan the Stallion all over them. And I feel like while Meg definitely does the numbers and some of her music is just absolute fire, I mean, just check out our, our most recent uh review of her her album but um 
it feels like Rico is is kind of right there in terms of weirdness, just in like a totally different lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love it. I've, it's it's great to see these artists just rising like this. You might be hearing a Rico song pop up on my top ten songs of twenty twenty. So subscribe youtubecom slash nostalgia pod. Don't want to miss that. Don't want to miss it, and you don't want to miss us talking about Sean Mendes. <laughs> He'll treat you or better. Do man. you? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'll, I might be in stitches after this review because uh, I was not too impressed with Wonder. Uh, I'm just going to start out there. Um, it's it's here, funny. Here come the thumbs downs. Right. I know. <laughs> the the Camille Caballo, uh, Sean Mendes. Do, do they have a name? Are they like... like? Oh, they must have a name. I Sh- actually don't Shamia know. Shamia or something like that? or like That sounds right. Yeah, probably something. Yeah, because you can't do Camille and Sean with Camille first. Yeah. Shamia. Yeah. Um, Get it? So, They're in love. It was really the subject of that second Camille album, and I thought it was kind of a detriment lyrically. We talked about that <laughs> last year. Um, but their love is, is quite fruitful. Senorita. Did you yeah. know that is the eighth most streamed song of all time on Spotify? Well, you do now. I'm not I'm not surprised. By, um, I mean, it. it's... Uh, it's an it's a good pairing for the both of them in terms of star and and maybe they really are in love I, I don't know can't speak to the relationship but I know I've never really been super impressed with Sean Mendez I mean I think he makes good inoffensive pop music um, you know kind of a mix of Ed Sheeran with like a Justin Bieber like heartthrob vibe like John really Mayer, Justin you know bit. yeah I I guess I feel like John Mayer's got a little more bite but I guess if he does yeah. If John Mayer strictly wrote songs like Wonderland, Your Body's in Wonderland, maybe that would be Sean Mendes. <laughs> and uh, he's coming out with this album, Wonder, which is, I think, what, like his third album? Um, yep. First in two years. And Dave, uh, what do you like about this album? Why don't we start with that? Let's start with the good stuff. Well, I will say, I think this is quite easily his best album to date. And has a lot of my favorite Sean Mendes songs. And again, it, not that that says a whole lot if, you, if you're listening to what we're saying, but like apart from like Treat You Better and There's Nothing Holding Me Back, haven't been a big fan. Of I don't really care for Senorita, which I find quite bland. Uh, but on this, I actually think Sean changed up his performance for on a handful of songs that at least made me st- stand out to me. I think lyrically he's still a work in progress, but he has improved on this album. So, you know, I think he's only 22. Like he, he is in his early twenties. He's a very young man still. And I think that'll continue to grow. You'd, you'd hope anyway, but yeah, there were some moments I liked and I think they stood out to me more than anything else. Like that last album from 2018 self-titled, didn't really care for it. He had some hits on that. Sold well for him, but I thought that was that was probably the first album where he felt like a real established artist. You know, post being a, a nobody on Vine making music. You know, he, mm-hmm. he felt like a real artist two years ago, and now I feel like there's actually some real growth on this. And it's funny because there really is nothing holding him back. He's actually top ten in monthly listens on Spotify coming into this album drop. So. Uh, you know, we saw that we've, we've everyone's seen the star for years at this point, but it's actually happened and been delivered on. He's truly like at the top of pop. And it's kind of funny to see him have someone like Bieber on uh, this album, because Bieber very much is one of his forebears. 
Yeah, when you when you said uh, you can see the growth, I was going to say, is this someone that needs growth in terms of quality? Because to say what you want about what he puts out, people eat it up. You know, he's like you said, he's top 10 on Spotify, um, probably one of the biggest rising male artists, if not already established male artists in, in music, uh, at least popular music. It's um, very impressive how he's been able to do this. Well, I mean, maybe not getting the critical acclaim that people might expect. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I think there's he takes some swings on this album, which I give him credit for. But I also hear just he's got like three or four moves on this album that he kind of kept going back to the well sure. on, you know, like uh, in my second listen through a song like higher has like this real like moment where there's like this bass drop and it's just yeah. like kind of plucking along and like, Oh, that's cool. And then you get to the end of the album. And uh, I think it was on um, piece of you or, or maybe it's look up at the stars, almost the exact same moment happens. And I was just like, wait, like th this guy's just kind of like running it back thinking we, we didn't remember what happened like 30 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> you know, you get a song like always been you and I feel like it kind of is similar to like teach me how to love where it's like this, like stripped down, like acoustic, very mm -hmm. soft love song. And it's just like, you know, that uh, I get, a, I get that he's a growing artist and, and figuring out what he wants to say, but still felt very samey and a bit, you know, underwhelming at times, but I, I didn't have high expectations going into it. No. So. Yeah, I actually wrote down a lot of those songs as well. Higher, uh, that like upbeat percussion production stood out to me as well. And I thought his chorus was pretty tight on that. And then immediately following that up with 24 Hours, which is a much more uh, you know, stark switch up because it's very stripped down and primarily just Sean's vocals. And that chorus kind of builds throughout the song. I like that one too. Uh, Piece of yeah. You, though, you're right. Again, that up-tempo production i think funny enough that one had a little more like disco energy from the shots mm -hmm. perspective and he, everyone wants a piece of being indebted to disco these days uh, no doubt about that um <laughs> i thought look up at the stars also is kind of interesting because those bass notes like pre-chorus were pretty cool um i like that beat switch in the pre-chorus too i think that's like really good like song construction that song even if like sean sometimes is one of the lesser remarked upon parts of his own songs like i think the songs are really well done on this um and then yeah you have you have the hit right you have monster with bieber and mm. that's very much of a piece with holy the other post changes bieber song and bieber's is very righteous and uh reflective but I actually think he's making better songs than he did on his own album from February. Like, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Like, I, I like this and Holy way more than anything on Changes. Even though, like, lyrically, it's still similar yeah. to that album. Ch yeah, Changes, I mean, the more we look back at it, the more just such a, such a terrible album. <laughs> um, such a letdown. But yeah, I agree. I think Bieber is making more interesting music with collaborators like this, dropping it on songs and on his own album. Uh, I, I agree with you in terms of um, Look Up at the Stars. I think that's probably one of the, the standouts for me. Um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I, w I would not say I'm the biggest John Mendes fan as, as anyone that's gotten all the way through this review has, has figured out. But I, I do think 
Um, like you said, he's a young artist who is taking some swings, trying some things, showing some growth. Maybe better things are ahead critically uh, for Sean. Probably can't get much better streaming wise, but who knows? Maybe he can, uh, <laughs> you know, even up that success. So good for him if he can. Um, but why don't we wrap up on the albums there and move into something else that teens like a lot, which is Euphoria on HBO and Zendaya, Emmy Award winner right. Zendaya. Um, yeah, uh, obviously reprising her role as Rue for this special episode. I think there's what four special episodes? I think there's that just will be two. Next one's in January. Two. Okay. Um, and last time we saw Zendaya went out uh, on the first season of Euphoria on HBO um, to a, a Beyonce music video after her and Rue, the things fall apart with them. And the episode starts with Rue and, and Jules uh, back together. Uh, or do they? Because pretty quickly it devolves into Rue doing a little... Uh, I was going to say, what's it, what's it called? Dinner with Andre? Is that the movie? Like Pretty much a movie, just or mm. a, a one-hour episode of Rue and her sponsor Ali at a diner having a conversation about addiction and life and uh, probably the most uh, low key or stripped back episode of euphoria that they've had. Yeah. Um, but I thought super affecting. How, how did you feel that this yeah, episode did? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you think about euphoria season one and obviously we're m- losing most of the uh, impressive young supporting cast with this special and you're also missing those kind of obvious artistic flourishes that we associated with the euphorious cinematography and the lighting and whatnot. Right. And often that really stood out. And even if it came across as showy at times, no matter how you feel about it, it's clearly not here. We're really just in one place. Uh, It's a famous restaurant in LA. It's been a lot of movies. Um, And it's just about a conversation. And that's not, usually been the speed of euphoria but when euphoria got into i think that like heavier stuff and slowed down for a second you get some of the most resonant aspects of the show even if it's less flashy and i think that's what this special episode should remind you of um it was shot in uh september under you know strict covid rules of course and it's funny because uh zendaya and sam levinson reunited again to make a whole movie, Malcolm and Marie, with John David Washington, that they shot in quarantine, will be getting in February on Netflix in anticipation of the Oscars and whatnot. So uh, it seemed like Sam Levinson and Zendaya just really wanted to work <laughs> this year because they've they've uh, made more than most. But uh, yeah, it's definitely not the speed of a normal Euphoria episode, but you know, I think they, they cover a lot of ground in this conversation between Rue and uh, Ali so I liked it a lot yeah it's it's a really awesome episode and obviously you have Zendaya but Coleman uh, Domingo playing Ali was so strong uh, across from from her and so affecting um, I just found the whole conversation really captivating and Zendaya being uh, 
I think such a, a brilliant actor in terms of how much she can do non-verbally with her acting. And that that's the whole thing here, right? Because uh, while, you know, like, like I mentioned, one of the last moments we have with Rue at the end of season one is her doing this whole dance, this, like song and dance, this music video. Um, it really is just her sitting in this booth and wearing her fatigue, her mental exhaustion, her... Uh, loss of will to live in a lot of ways right on her face and in her body and um, I think the way Zendaya does that is just so brilliant in this episode and I think some really effective pieces to it too right so you you have like a pretty uh, stereotypical uh, music drop for a show like this but you know you get Moses Sumney uh was a hello me in 20 years or me in 20 years something like that and that's how i knew this wasn't uh like a leftover from season one because it was a new new moses somebody song (laughs) um but just uh, i thought a totally good choice especially when they kind of follow up later on when rue's talking about how she hasn't really planned her life out that far she's really not planning to be around that long and ali asked her how she wants to be remembered and she kind of sits in silence pondering like if if she were to die how she'd want to be thought of and i thought it was just uh brilliantly kind of brought around um uh, as a full episode kind of as like a bottle episode but also a larger uh point of of the whole arc of season one which is this underlying addiction for rue um any thoughts on uh domingo uh you know coleman domingo's performance or just well, I think he's probably better. He's better than Zendaya in this because he actually gets, I think, more to show off. You know, he he speaks more lines because he's talking faster and stuff. And yeah, I thought he, I thought he was really good. Uh, he's a you know he's a classically trained actor, so it makes sense that this is this kind of uh, oratorical uh, scene would he would thrive in. You know, it's very much like a stage play, I guess you could say. Um, I just kind of laugh like the conversation. I think. It, uh, the characters are having is pretty good and uh, covers a lot of ground. It makes a lot of sense too, considering the place Rue is in and their relationship. But I kind of laughed when Ali was like talking about like Nike and like your cell phones and stuff. And like, he was getting like real, like open your third eye for a second. I, just, <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I didn't expect it to be as substantive as it was for a special yeah. that they kind of just threw together as they uh, wait to be able to make season two the way they want to, you know, production wise. So I, I was impressed with how it is. And that second, spe- uh, second special comes down the 24th and that's from Jules perspective. Uh, wicked excited to see that. And January 24th, sorry. Just, uh, just more evidence of the, uh, the strength of saying of Zendaya euphoria as a show in general. Um, obviously, this episode was a bit limited by COVID and everything around it, but um, to be able to have the range of this and, and just kind of pull it all together, make it still feel apart was really impressive. So check it out. It's an hour of your time and euphoria seems to always be good. Um, we're going to move on to some movies though now, because we got quite a few to get through and let's start with the next installment of small acts, red, white, and blue following the story of Leroy Logan. Uh, in the early 1980s, his, uh, you know, based off a true story, um, rise of, of him into the police force, 
very famous for um, recruiting black officers. And, and back in the, the 1980s and 90s, he started the National Black Police Association over in the United Kingdom. Um, just a really important figure um, in the police world then. And, you know, kind of juxtaposing his experience with his father's um, Leroy Logan is played with played by John Boyega of Star Wars recent trilogy uh, fame and uh, Steve Toussaint plays his dad and you know a couple other people in it but um, you know this is our third third installment mm-hmm. and I thought this was a really effective one we we had Mangrove which was a, a court procedural we had a kind of hang out chill just kind of get the the vibe nice. with uh man i'm blanking on the name now. lover's rock lover's rock thank you um and now this one is is more of a a look at the the blatant racism which we got more of in mangrove um you know within the the police department in britain how did you feel let's start with but uh with this how did you feel about boyega's performance in this Oh, I think he's tremendous. That I think that goes without saying, you know. Uh, yeah, I think people have been excited for John Boyega with his newfound clout after <laughs> becoming, you know, internationally famous from Star Wars. People have been excited to see him have uh, more to give than he ultimately was uh, allowed to do as Finn in Star Wars. So I, I've been anticipating something like this, and again, making something with Steve McQueen. Uh, more likely than not, it's going to go well for you as an actor. Good idea. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I think he's really good, especially once he starts to, uh, lose his faith in the system. He's trying to, uh, reform from the inside, genuinely trying to rehabilitate, uh, the way you're supposed to, you know, mm-hmm. and red, white, and blue is interesting to me because it takes place a little over 10 years after mangrove took place, it's, you know, still in London. And again, it's, it's smaller scale because this is about someone going into the race police force from the inside and genuinely trying to make it better. And I could not help but find this incredibly resonant today as something that, pe- that talk, people have talked about a lot in the U.S., obviously, this summer. So, yeah, I thought Bayega was, was tremendous. Yeah, uh, I, I was really impressed. And, you know, it, it's kind of hard, right? Uh, what we've seen to John Boyega outside of Star Wars, where, like you said, he uh, was poised to play a huge role and then got kind of sidelined as the writing and conceptualizing the last couple episodes uh, seemed to kind of fall apart <laughs> in a, or fall in on itself. But um, what we saw him in Detroit, which yeah. was a uh, fairly mixed reviewed movie and Captain uh, Bigelow, think, though, and similar subject matter to this. Right. Definitely. So he's he's done some dramatic acting, but I feel like this really got to put him in a, a really meaty role to display a lot of range, right? Because Leroy Logan uh, and taking on this uh, undertaking to try to reform and, and improve uh, by diversifying the uh, British police force um, has to approach this with uh, a calm, a calmness and a coolness similar to many other civil rights leaders of the past where they had to, and, and the, the play that the many black people have had to face where they feel like they, and they've had to be 
uh, 10 times better than their counterparts because of right. their race. And that's proven throughout. I mean, it, even the parts where he's losing it, I, I just wanted him to beat the crap out of some yeah, of those people because sure. you they're so hateable and detestable in, in terms of how they, they treated him. And not only is it in being in this role, not only is it the racism he's facing, but uh, the, uh, I don't know, stigma he's now given because of the job he has by people of his own race. So the the interracial right. um, stigma that he's facing as well is, is quite challenging, even within his own family. And you kind of see his loved ones turn it around, but it's uh, pretty much everybody in his life in some way is turning his back on him. And I can only imagine how that must have been for the actual Leroy Logan, but I felt like Boyega portrayed that really well, that like spiral into despair and, and frustration. Right. And and that's another thing too is, and I think credit goes to Steve McQueen and how they how this movie is constructed because this doesn't give you the the wide swath of uh, Leroy Rogan's career and the you know some success that he did have in this this pursuit of his. Mm-hmm. It just kind of stops after his conversation with his dad, where they both kind of come to grips with what he's doing, and acknowledge that it's a just cause, but who knows if it's going to lead to anything, right? Like they don't have like the happiest of chats to end the film. Right. And like, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of how mangrove ends because mangrove ends, you know, in triumph, the mangrove nine exonerated. Right. And then it leaves you w- with the text. Oh yeah. Well, um, the, the, the leader of the rest, the head of the restaurant was harassed for 30 more years. Then he closed mm-hmm. the restaurant in, like the nineties. It's like, Oh shit. You know, like, yep. and then, this one again, it kind of stops you short. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't get as glib as something like Trials Cargo Seven, which we talked about with uh, Mangrove, you know, because it's smaller focus, smaller scale, red, white, and blue. So, you know, Boyega, I just think about, you know, he went viral for a really impassioned speech at the protests in the summer for Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and he's been very vocal about not giving a shit about how the film industry traditionally is operated. And he does not care about playing nice and, and playing the game. So I'm looking forward to just seeing what else he continues to do, because something like this feels very much in his wheelhouse about what John Boyega seems to care about these days, you know? So totally, totally. And, and for C McQueen, this very much thematically continues to make sense for what we've come to expect from small acts so far. Yeah, you know, as we talk about small acts every week, it feels a bit redundant to just praise McQueen over and over. Yeah. But there's so many awesome shots in this, you know, whether it's Boyega when he's kind of chasing that that guy through the, the warehouse and the tracking shot as, you know, it's kind of like weaving in and out through there. Or, you know, another great shot from a car when the dad goes to drop him off for his first day of training and uh, he you know, he gets out, doesn't say anything, and then he gets out and gives him a hug. And, you know, you kind of watch them have this moment, this father-son moment through the the front windshield of the car, you know, similar to, it reminded me a lot of Widows, actually. And when you have, um, oh, man, I'm forgetting his name, but driving the car from, uh, it's Colin Farrell, right? In that, and uh, I'm forgetting who. Wait, sorry, what are you talking about? In Widows. Um, oh, the, yeah. The Colin car Farrell. tracking the shot scene. Yes. yes. Um, Excellent scene. Yeah, another great scene. So, uh, give uh, Steve McQueen more more shots in cars. But um, just overall, really 
really visually pleasing to watch uh great performances and mangrove continues to be i feel like much must watch tv every week like i'm excited every time there's something a new story being told so if you're not watching yet and you've listened to our three reviews please do so um any more thoughts on red white and blue dave uh this is the last one that was at new york film festival you know a few months ago so the last two we're getting Alex Weedle and Education were uh, previously unseen by American critics, but very excited to see this continue. I think, as far as I know, there's no like super famous actors left in the run. Obviously, we've had a you know big amount of those so far with Letitia Wright and uh, Boyega to this point. But I mean, Steve McQueen. What else can you say? Well, from one young up and coming actor to another. Riz Ahmed, starring in Sound of Metal, a movie that just dropped on Amazon Prime last week, premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last year. Last year. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. So it was supposed to be released back in August, but with COVID-19, things got pushed to Prime, dropped November 20th. So I guess it's been out for... Uh, no, it was released theatrically, sorry, on the 20th. Yeah. So... Um, dropped on prime this past Friday. And, you know, with Riz Ahmed, when we, when we talked about the night of, Oh man, what was that? Three years ago now? More than that. Four years ago. 2016, I think. So for four years ago, it felt like we were just like, yeah, Riz Ahmed going to take over the world being everything. And then, you know, there, there was a little bit of a lull. Um, It's in rogue one. Yeah, he was in Rogue One. He was solid in there, had a you know a, a supporting role, but have he hasn't really had that that performance that really gets to propel him as like a top tier actor. Right? Um, but like, you taking the bag from Venom didn't do it for you. <laughs> but but Riz MC also you know a, a fun little side thing that he's got going on. So there's there's a he, he's not not working. It's just I feel like he hasn't really had that thing that's caught on. And I feel like Sound of Metal could be that that performance that really propels him into top tier actor status because uh, I was completely blown away by this movie directed by Darius Martyr um, telling the story of a, uh, a drummer for this metal rock band and uh, black gammon um, stupid name, but uh, him and Riz Ahmed's uh, character and his girlfriend, Lou uh, Riz Ahmed's character's name is Ruben as this duo and he's losing his hearing and it really details how his life is altered by uh, losing 75% of his hearing um, and how he kind of uh, deals with that and uh, as well as addiction issues throughout, which I thought was a really interesting pairing of this. And, you know, I guess, uh, Dave, just wondering, this was a, a small movie, not something that was super on my radar but really glad we watched it what was your takeaway from the movie what what were you left most with oh yeah it's gotta be the riz riz performance definitely the one we've been waiting for as you said and he has been nominated for best actor at the gotham awards so hopefully that uh you know continues with best actor i think he's very deserving and definitely a actor worth uh worth honoring you know i mean we say young because he's hasn't been super mainstream all that long and hasn't starred in too many things, but he's actually like 38. He's not like super young, you know? So would be nice. I think for 
that, that that kind of adulation to continue for him. But yeah, I think with Sound and Metal, what I think what what stood out to me is just, it it cut it come. I think it's really done well as like a story about someone losing their hearing and having the world turn upside down, and like it's handled with such care. Like a lot of the supporting actors uh, in this film that are deaf are deaf in real life. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes a long way because it actually benefits the uh, uh, performance and uh, performances and, and the believability of the movie and all that. And, you know, the uh, head of the house he goes to live in where he's trying to rehabilitate his ability to function as a someone becoming deaf. Uh, Joe, the head of that house played by Paul Racy. Paul Racy is someone who is not actually deaf, but he's born to two deaf parents, you know? And you can tell in some of his scenes, like the scene where he feels betrayed by Riz when uh, yeah. he goes and gets the implants. You could you could feel that that emotion he was feeling. And as he, why you understand why he's kicking him out of the house, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, you know, between how genuinely it seems to treat you know, the deaf community and their struggles and also their, and also their, their shared community, you know, and, you know, and how they feel about it, whether it's actually a disability for them or not, you know, that, and on top of Riz Ahmed's good performance, Olivia Cook, who I've liked forever since Thoroughbreds, small role, but I think she's pretty good as well. So uh, at the end of the day, it's a, ve- it's an acting vehicle, but it, I, I, th- I think it, it's quite, quite moving really. Yeah. Um, that your comments about how it treats and is so respectful of the deaf community. Um, I thought some of the, my, the best scenes were when Riz Ahmed is uh, working with the children in the classroom as he's kind of learning sign language at ASL as well. Um, but seeing him work with them, seeing the humanity, you know, with, with these people who, you know, kind of going back to another movie we talked about earlier in the year, Crip Camp. Um, are often overlooked and treated as different based on the the differences in their abilities. And um, I was just really uh, impressed with all of the acting performances. Like you said, these are not people who maybe are always getting the most roles and many of them unknown, but that scene um, between Ruben and uh, what was his name? Joe. Um, who runs the place? I'm, I'm forgetting. What yeah, Joe. Was. Joe, when when Riz finally leaves, and then Joe just lets out that sigh and starts to like break down, just totally got me. And um, I think that that scene, what stands out most is how you really come to understand how Riz was so codependent on music in Lou um, to keep him sober, and um, the thought of losing that for good is sending him back into this uh, dry drunk spiral, so to speak, and um, really effectively done. You know, you can even see how um, in that conversation, Ruben is just completely jittery and thinking um, not clearly uh, thinking very impulsively. And that's the thing is you have this performance where, you know, Riz Ahmed's playing this, this, uh, addict who's working to be sober um falling back into alcoholic tendencies while also dealing with loss of uh, 
major sense and all your senses are major but like hearing mm-hmm. um you know just it's a it's a completely overwhelming performance to think about all the the complexities of it and i feel like he just masterfully showed it all and really culminates i think in in a wonderful ending probably one of my favorite endings of a movie this year where you know him and lou have this reunion and very emotional goodbye as they kind of recognize that their lives have grown apart because of this and you know he finally turns the implants off and just kind of accepts the silence and it sits with the stillness that joe had told him to do and i was just like completely blown away by that ending um found it to be a really emotional uh last 15 or so minutes and really thought it, it earned it but um you know Darius Martyr doesn't have a lot uh, to his name here. I'm yeah. really impressed with his uh, the, this like first really major film. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I believe it's an original screenplay, too. It's not adapted off anything. Uh, he's probably most well-known for co-writing The Place Beyond the Pines mm-hmm. several years ago at this point. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, one would hope this movie could do well on Prime traditionally. Uh, Amazon Studios films don't make any money at the box office anyway. So I, I mean, I hope that people want to check this out. The the uh, credit that Riz has been getting as performance with this has, has been going on for over a year now at this point out of TIFF 2019. So I just hope people give it a chance because it's, uh, I mean, this is another thing too, like the deaf community <laughs> in dramatic film and that's something you see all the time in, in oh. mainstream entertainment so again it, it's i think really valuable everyone should watch it I, I totally agree uh do you think riz could potentially get a best actor nomination for this i do i mean he seems to be right in the mix at the top there i mean in terms of locks it seems that chadwick boseman with ma Rainey's black bottom and perhaps anthony hopkins with the father they seem to be quite up there but then you have Riz Ahmed, you have Stephen Young with Minari, you have perhaps Tom Hanks with News of the World. It seems to be there's a pretty solid tier, but I, I'm definitely rooting for Riz. I think this is tremendous performance. Yeah, I'd love to see him get a nomination. Um, rooting for you, Riz. Uh, still love the night of. We stand them. Absolutely. Um, why don't we finish up, though, with maybe one of the most anticipated films of the year, yeah. Mank, the 11th film from David Fincher. Uh, Dave, the return to film too. Are you a uh, are you a David Fincher fan? Do you like him? Think he I makes mean, good movies? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Who's like I don't like David Fincher? That's so weird. You know. The, you you know that there's someone out there though, and I hope that they like turn this on, and we're hoping we were gonna just like totally eviscerate him, and I was like punching the air. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, who the hell hates David Fincher? Just makes like the best movies in Hollywood. I mean, of the past few decades. He's one of, if not the only people that has a legitimate, like, objective, quote unquote, claim to having the best movie in two different decades. Zodiac in the 2000s, The Social Network in the 2010s. And whether you agree with that specifically or not, he's right there for that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, we loved Mindhunter, but it has been six years since he made a feature film. That would be Gone Girl in 2014. Also a great movie. Great movie. Uh, but this is his first feature film since we've been doing this podcast. It's been a minute. And a very. this is also a very exciting, you know, film prospect for him to him to make. So very excited about the Fincher of it all. But 
um, also this being about the guy who wrote Citizen Kane and the authorship of Citizen Kane being so famous and so lauded and so hotly debated for decades. Uh, definitely an exciting return, in my opinion. Yeah. Dave, may- maybe a good place to start with this is uh, I know we both recently uh, watched Citizen Kane in anticipation of this movie. I- I'm not sure if it was a rewatch for you or not. I'd only seen scenes throughout my childhood i never actually watched it straight through yeah. what was just your impression of citizen kane you know obviously regarded as one of the best movies of all time but right so i had never actually seen i had seen some like stills and stuff but it was a movie that um i don't think i ever like was this ever on cable i don't think it was like, no, I, and, uh... like no one ever put it in front of me growing up so it was just something that i knew everyone said was amazing and i should watch it and when i made an i check movies account in 2000 10 it was on the watch list i've wanted to watch this movie for legitimately 10 years at least yet i haven't until uh very recently but yeah as you said it's one of the most widely regarded films of of all time was the top of the sight and sound poll for decades until the most recent poll when it slipped just to number two and we'll get an update on that poll once again in two years um and yeah, watching it for the first time, I was like, wow, yeah, uh, Citizen Kane, it's pretty good, isn't it? It, it's, yeah. it, it fucking does. <laughs> um, uh, so much to like about it, and Orson Welles in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. Great performance. Uh, the the makeup techniques they used to age Kane throughout the movie really stood out to me. Um, and also just the, the t- so many shots and techniques that uh, and like motifs throughout Citizen Kane that have become staples and almost cliches in modern movie making that, Oh, this is the Genesis of that. You think of like the mirror scene uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the movie, which we recently saw in uh, the last Jedi, for example. Yep. Um, but yeah, the citizen Kane, uh, so, so good. And to see something kind of mimic that structure in Mank, I thought really impressed me because citizen Kane is famous for its uh, uh, non-linearity differing, yep. Uh, groups of narrators and their reliability being up and down and we're kind of getting that again with Mank and Herman Mankiewicz's reflection on his past in a again a nonlinear fashion so big Citizen Kane guy what about you (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know I I think what I was most struck by outside of the intelligence of the screenplay and how it really uh, especially for the time was such a, a unique and challenging way to tell a story, you right. know, um, non-traditional for that period, jumping around timelines, um, kind of some some mixed reliability in terms of narrator at different points, you know, and I, kind of letting the viewer take away what they wanted to from the film. I think there's some messages that kind of clearly come through, but I think there's a lot more you can take away depending on how you want to interpret things. Um, that and, and just the visual cinematography of it you know there's so many scenes that are shot with like light just creating silhouette and shadow um really large open spaces you know i'm thinking about like kane sitting in front of the fireplace as his wife you know works on the puzzle and how that room just felt massive and hollow and so empty and it really created that sense of like loneliness for for kane it's just so impressively done for that time period i mean to to be to like movies at all and be and watch that and if you came away saying you 
you didn't find it impressive at least <laughs> it, i i don't I, I don't know if, if you really like movies as much as you think you do right exactly so um you know we, we come into mank this uh the story like you preface very well about herman mankovitz a famous uh theater uh, writer you know uh, screenwriter um critic very intelligent man uh jewish american um and i found this to be a interesting and i felt like a little underwhelming I, but i also think that speaks to just how high my expectations were for fincher that mm -hmm. i was like this movie is gonna blow me away and i think i left it being like that was pretty good a great homage i think in a lot of ways to kane like you mentioned it it mirrors or, or mimics a lot of it but i think it didn't quite meet the hot the lofty expectations i had for it yeah i think uh, expectations going in play a big part because mank is about herman mankowitz but it's not really about mank writing citizen kane and i think going in a lot of people expected this to be Fincher's thoughts on Raisin Kane, the famous essay from Pauline Kael, the lauded film critic, in where she questioned the authorship of the Citizen Kane screenplay, which notably won the uh, Best Original Screenplay Oscar for both Mank and Wells. Mm -hmm. And the charge was that it was really all Mank. And, you know, the autorist theory versus... Uh, movies being of a piece with everyone and the devaluing of the screenwriter. There's a lot of, I think, important themes and ideas that Kale was getting at, but it seems to be for the most part that this, the scholarship of that essay has been uh, largely uh, challenged and uh, debunked, I guess you could say, but, but the spirit of what she was saying probably still lasts. Um, mm -hmm. So I think people were thinking that this might have more of a, I think, more of a take, quote unquote, on that idea. And it's notable because Mank was written by David Fincher's dad, Jack yeah. Fincher, who passed away in like 2003, I think it was. This movie was most largely written in the 90s. But apparently, actually, David Fincher, when he first took a look at the pass of the script, that thought, that KL-esque thought, was more prevalent in the script. And David Fincher doesn't appear to actually subscribe to that. So he challenged his dad to, uh, I think change it right and like you watch this movie and you know you get that big wells scene at the end where wells actually comes to meet mank but it doesn't really have as much of a i think pointed opinion on that idea right. and it's you know like like i think some people thought this was going to be like oliver stone's jfk where it's like this mm. is what happened yeah you know i have no idea if this is how it happened you know it, it, so we didn't get that but i was really impressed with something I didn't expect, which was the political resonance mm. of the story, which is, again, communicated really just through the flashbacks. So yeah. I think it's a really impressive movie. But yeah, I mean, expectations and hype were Very high, nervous. despite not really knowing a lot about what the movie really was going to be. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the political resonance is probably the most, um, like, like the biggest takeaway. But, you know, as I'm, as I'm thinking about the moments that really stood out to me um i think similar to kane um you know this story is about a very complicated person um you know obviously when you think about citizen kane you're talking about one of the wealthiest most accomplished people 
in the country in that story. But yes. in this, I mean, Herman Mankiewicz is uh, a very lost and kind of like um, all over the place type of person. You know, mm-hmm. he's a he's an alcoholic. He's a gambler. He's got a lot of debts. But at the same time, you you know, you hear these stories about how he sponsored families to leave uh, Germany as the Nazis were taking over to you know help them get out of there. His movies and, and the things he worked on were banned in Germany because of how much he spoke out against the, the Nazi Reich. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated person. You know, you see moments where he's an absolute asshole pig and you see moments where he's very sweet and gentle and caring and um, kind of finding what's really at the center of all that I thought was really interesting story to follow absolutely and you know that's a big point about some of the the virtues of mank as a guy nicely contrasted later on where louis b Mayer, who i think everyone knows is one of the founders of mgm but also known for kind of being a piece of shit really and how he <laughs> ran his studio and everything but uh, yeah. his comments i mean like Germany, you know, can't uh, can't close off that market now, can you? You know, on the topic of the Nazis, and I actually really like that first scene where you're at William Randolph Hearst's like dinner party, with it all kind of sitting around that room in a funny way. Everyone's on like couches and seats and stuff, mm-hmm. and kind of talking throughout this big room. Very, I feel like a really awkward way to have people hang out together personally. Um, <laughs> but that I really like that because that was when Mank was still in everyone's good graces because it's earlier on in the flashback story, you know. Mm-hmm. And that had like a pulse to it, the way they were all like ch- uh, chiming into the convos and stuff. Yeah. And I think the movie does a really good job of illustrating how uh, eloquent Mank apparently was in real life. And they say mm-hmm. in the movie, Hearst like, doesn't like how you write, he likes how you talk. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, Mank was a really smart and engaging person to be around. It kind of explains how his career panned out, you know, as he, uh, fell from grace managed to hang around for a long time so yeah and i think casting oldman gary oldman in the lead role was a smart move because gary oldman is known to be one of the most languid and intelligent actors out there at the moment you know yeah. uh, and i think he he portrays mank really well you know it's funny um we've seen oldman do a lot recently i mean he won the uh mm-hmm. he won for Churchill, right? Yeah, I mean, Darkest Hour. Darkest Best Hour. Uh, well, maybe not being the most interesting film, I think definitely um, great performance from him. And you kind of see him looking like a, a chubby Gary Oldman here, but I think really slips into that role and allows him to be become Mankiewicz in a lot of ways. Very impressive. Right. I, I like that performance as Mank. There's been a lot of talk about his casting because Gary Oldman is notably older than Mank was at the time of his death, let alone the time this movie's taking place and in the flashbacks. Also, we kind of got an unfortunate like Hollywood thing happen here where the actress who plays his wife, it's a small part, but Mank and his wife were born the same year in real life, yet the actor who plays her is like 30 years younger than Oldman. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that, that that's kind of like the whole Hollywood bullshit where they don't cast older women anymore. You didn't need to do that. And to me, it actually kind of made me raise an eyebrow because I was like, she looks quite young. That That's his wife? That's not like his daughter or something? Like, that was a little strange right. to me. Well, and especially when it's kind of juxtaposed against Amanda Seyfried playing Marion Davies, right? And yeah. uh, looking really young and, and gorgeous and 
I thought she was absolutely enrapturing yes. in that role. You know, uh, I think you really get to see Seafried show out more than uh, I ever thought she man. could. And it's kind of crazy because she's probably going to get nominated for an Academy Award for this and supporting right. actress. She, I think she'll be the first one from Mean Girls to do that, which is, you yeah. know, you, wait, wait. after Mean Girls came out. Rachel McAdams might have been nominated, right? I don't think so. I don't know. I'll, I'll look that up as we're talking. Yeah. But, um, it's point. just it's just really uh, kind of crazy, like you were saying, to see this very young wife of Megvis who's the same age, so then looking the same age as this, I don't know, platonic affair he's having. Uh, pretty pretty interesting. I'm uh, I'm wondering uh, outside of Seafried, were there any other performances or or like scenes that really like swept you up or were things about the movie that really captured you? Sure. Oh, and uh, McAdams was nominated for supporting in Spotlight in 2016, ah, but she didn't win. Seyfried might have a good chance to win. So that would, that would still hold your theory here. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned that dinner scene. I thought that had like a really nice pulse to it. Um, you know, I, I really liked, again, the resonant politics stuff where you get like Louis Mayer talking about his disdain for Upton Sinclair. And that kind of stuff really progresses through the movie. Um, like, you know, Mank seems to realize he has morals and he can't help himself but stick to them, even if it's beneficial for him to look the other way, right? Like, you get that scene where the guy who makes the reels that are very anti-Sinclair and doctored and whatnot, mm -hmm. like, brings himself to tremendous grief realizing that he basically like used his talents to mislead everyone about Upton Sinclair and, and the election doesn't go his way as a result that grief and Manx like I don't know like he has like like a tenderness to him where he sees that it's like yeah this is probably all lost but like like he's just trying to like keep the guy off the edge and stuff like mm -hmm. everything around the politics stuff i really enjoyed um i actually would have liked more of william randolph first just because i love charles vance mm -hmm. and like he actually doesn't even have a whole lot of lines to be honest a lot of times it's like him like looking at mayor and looking at mank and like nodding it or or, or safe read and like he's like hmm yes like he nods and stuff but like but the, then he gets the big moment with the, yeah. the parable at the end which is sure. the whole thing you know but like that's another exciting part about the movie too is like William Randolph Hearst is, you know, the the inspiration for this Charles Foster Kane. But like again, the movie Mank isn't like having Herman Mankiewicz like go on a whiteboard and be like, ah, we're gonna do this, and this is because Hearst had this happen in his life. Like, it's not like the Oliver Stone of it all, right? You know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that that political stuff really stuck out to me because again, it's resonant. Like seeing the media be. Uh, manipulated uh, the use of the media to manipulate the average person to get what you want politically. And in this case, again, it's a suppression suppression of like socialist uh, feeling and, and thoughts. Right. And like, you can't help but be like, wow, that is not that different from what it is 80 years later. Yep. Absolutely not. Um, you know, it, just a thought that came to me and then I want to circle back to the movie is I feel like the, like the modern day Citizen Kane in a lot of ways is something like Succession, right? Instead of it being a movie, it's a series that kind of details the, the Murdochs and, and 
there, you know, the, the infighting within that family and all the weirdness, um, just kind of an interesting thought. But to circle back, I actually, a scene that really stood out to me was the walk and talk with Mayer. You know, you kind of get Arliss Howard getting to have this this huge monologue as they, they walk. He kind of gets the scream at one point, and it kind of leads into him asking all the people to, to take at MGM to take a pay cut uh half of their salary and that that scene the way it's shot where it's like him on the stage with the light coming down like the crowd up almost kind of like the coliseum in a sense i thought was just so beautifully done and really uh, i think resonant of citizen kane in a lot of ways just i thought that was was a masterful scene i also really enjoyed when mank goes out to talk with uh is it with dance or who's he is he talking with marion davies uh dad right um, where they're outside at the shooting, like the the Western movie, and he kind of just walks onto the set and is. Oh yeah, well that's Hearst. And that's Hearst. They're yeah, like that's what I they're like dating, right, or whatever. Yeah. So yep. Kind of unique relationship. <laughs> For sure, <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely. I, I I thought that was just a very interesting scene to watch and great interplay between them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a movie that I I'm sad that I only got to watch one time before we we spoke because I feel like. You can go back and watch two or three times and you'll catch more lines. You'll pick up on more things, but the dialogue right. is so snappy. It's, it's great. And, and like, I, there are callbacks to Kane where like they reference things about the script. And if you had just watched Citizen Kane, you're like, Oh, I know what they're talking about here. It's, it's like subtle lines, right? Like they mentioned something about a sled at one point and you're like, ah, mm-hmm. I know what that means, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the you know golden age of hollywood of it all it's just really cool to be because the movie's so um indebted to that kind of filmmaking but also really i think uh accurate or trying to be as accurate as it can right and like just being on like an old school movies lot mm-hmm. when they were in their heyday like that is really cool and you know the, it's scored by trent reznor and atticus ross like just about everything these days but I really like that score when you first get on the lot and uh, Mank goes into the screenwriting room and you meet all those other screenwriters at the studio and there's like subtle like keys going on when they're like going around in a circle again, nice yeah. rhythm to it and stuff. And then a new guy uh, comes in and like, they're like, and what's the finale? And like, they all look at him and he just kind of bullshit something and they all look <laughs> back at them. And it's like, I thought I really captured like screenwriters, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and how old Hollywood is portrayed, like what it what it was supposedly like, really, uh, really well done. And I feel like there's just so much, um, so much detail here that's that's really great. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess we could go on and on about it, but where I'm, where I'm kind of left with is where does this fall in the Fincher? filmography you know right we like like we talked about there's the there's the ones at the top you have zodiac you have social network and probably for a lot of people the third is uh fight club yeah fight club or gone girl those like the top four you think it's like right after that like that five six range yeah yeah for sure and again like it's not like a lot of our stuff right you know like social network uh mark zuckerberg and charles foster kane you can do a lot of connective tissue there if you want Mm -hmm. um i guess in a sense this doesn't do a whole lot that fincher hasn't done before like again it's really uh non-linear and in the persistence of flashbacks in this but he's had flashbacks before like with social network but um 
yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's an excellent film and um, I think what, what there's to like about it. I think you, you just, just watch the movie for what it is. And like, there's things to, there's so much to appreciate and admire in my opinion. I think the writing is really strong, you know, mm-hmm. and old man, again, probably too old to actually be Mank, but an old man's really good. Yep. In the really movie. good. And you get a lot of good supporting performances. Like we said, safe read, perhaps her best performance ever. Definitely her most uh, impressive to me. And uh, even Lily Collins, Emily Paris, Emily and Paris herself is here <laughs> in kind of a small role, but I, I actually really liked her as well. Good British accent when you're British, funny enough. Um, <laughs> and I saw some people notice no, noting that uh, while it's accuracy in like the sets and what we're visiting feel very much like the thirties and forties, the movie actually isn't shot in like the aspect ratio of the time even though you get those like put on burns. Like, uh, like cigarette burns on like the film stock, the fake or like, stock. like the fade out of scenes, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. But, like that doesn't really bother me if it's not like a hundred percent like that at the end of the day, like he made it for Netflix. So he's still going to, he still made it in widescreen. That's all good. Um, we really would have loved to watch this in the theater though, yeah. just because then you could really like lock in the cinematography and the score and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still a really good home watch. I, I turned my phone off for it just to, really lock in yeah it's it's definitely worth the watch and you know fincher is the best if or one of the best doing it right now so um give us your mank thoughts leave them below uh, i think we're probably going to wrap up there dave so uh, get your last thoughts and if there's any or if not tell us what we should be watching or listening to for next week one thing i did note when i watched this at Kane was that you know probably a lonely place to live but man xanadu that is a nice ass Mansion yeah. in the state, I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm down with Xanadu. I would live there. <laughs> um, but yeah, another big week coming up. Another filmmaker we like is dropping on Thursday. That would be Steven Soderbergh with What They All Want dropping on HBO Max. Also, for the most people in the country, they'll be able to watch Tenet on Tuesday on VOD at last. So we'll be getting to that in a week or two. Got my um, new TV just in time. There you go. Uh, I would advise everyone to watch it with the best screen and and sound that they have. Uh, but yeah, Tenet, big fan. Also, we're uh, getting on Apple TV Plus an animated film called Wolf Walkers, which apparently is tremendous and it's probably the biggest threat to Pixar's soul in the best animated feature category at the Oscars Ooh. this year. So it seems to be quite a notable film as well. And then New Music, you got the return of the avalanches you get the jack harlow debut album but most importantly we get man the moon three from kid cuddy of all times we're getting it now very exciting mm-hmm. yes give me audible hums, hums everywhere uh and you should also give us that follow on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod as well as soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod give us that five-star reading and review on itunes uh and also give dave a follow at martin swagger Give me a follow at Sheeny World Peace and give the pod a follow at Nostalgia Pod. We appreciate you and we'll see you next week. Peace out. Yeah.